Well, again and again, all throughout the New Testament, the Christian life is likened to a race. Not a short race, not a sprint, but a marathon, a long race. And if you've ever ran a marathon or participated in a long race, then you know that the most difficult part of the race is, is not the beginning, right? Because you're excited to, to embark on this journey, to embark on this race. You're feeling pumped. And it, it's not the end of the race when you can see the goal with your eyes. You see the finish line and you know your agony is about to end and you're about to experience the thrill of accomplishing this great feat. No, the most difficult part of any long race is the middle, isn't it? Why? Because you're tired and you're in pain. You're in agony. And you're tempted to just stop at times and sit on the sidelines and let everybody pass you and just go, man, this isn't worth it. And so it's in that middle of the race that you really have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is the motive for why I'm putting myself through this pain and agony? And here's the thing, it's, it's a wonderful analogy for the Christian faith because the, the Christian race that we're in has a beginning point, doesn't it? It's when we're saved. It's when we're regenerated, united to Christ by grace through faith. And it has a clear ending point as well, doesn't it? The finish line is when we die or if Christ comes back. And yet the time when we're most tempted to give up, like when you're in a long race, is in the middle. When you're in between those two points and you don't quite know when the end is coming and the thrill of beginning the race has faded We wonder, why should I continue? And you see, that's the exact situation that these Hebrew Christians who heard this sermon for the first time are in. They're in the middle of their Christian life, and they started it out really well. But now that it's costing them more and more, and they're getting tired, they're being tempted to turn away, to go back to the old covenant types and shadows that they left, abandoning profession of faith in Christ. And some of them already have. And so the author is saying, no, continue to run. He's exhorting them, run the race. And so as we look at his exhortation this morning, I want to see the three points that make up this exhortation. Three points that make up this exhortation. First of all, we're going to see the exhortation to run the race. We'll see that in verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race before us. They're tired. They're tempted to give up. And so he wants to command them, no, persevere and endure. But he doesn't just tell them, do this. He also tells them, here's how you're to do it. Here's how you're to carry this out. You're not left to your own devices to figure out how to run the race. No, here's how you actually do it. And that's the second point. The second point is that we are to run the race by laying aside every weight and sin that clings to us so closely. Any hindrance, any encumbrance, any obstacle that they can jettison in their life so that they're free to run the race more swiftly, they are to cast it aside. And then thirdly, finally, most importantly... 
They are to run this race, not by looking at themselves, not by looking at their circumstances, but by looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of their faith. They will not endure, and they will not lay aside the weights and the sin that cling to them unless they're looking to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us this morning. We're in the middle of our race, aren't we? We're tired, many of us. At times, we'll be tempted to stop running. And so we need to hear this exhortation this morning. And so it's my prayer that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that we might be encouraged to run the race set before us. So let's look first then at the race that we are to run. Look at verse 1 with me. Run the race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we see the therefore in verse 1, and it's connecting back to what he's already laid out again and again in Hebrews chapter 11. Remember that chapter markers are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) They're not there in the original language. We add those as reference points for our own benefit. But it's a mistake to think that he's starting a new thought. He's not. He's connecting what he's going to say here in verses 1 and 2 back to everything that he's already laid out in verse 11. And what's he saying? He's saying, listen, I've laid out before you these Old Testament saints as examples of those who, because of God's faithfulness to his people, persevered to the end, ran their race faithfully with perseverance until they crossed the finish line. And and they're a, a cloud of witnesses in God's word for us, testifying, God is faithful. He will sustain you. So run the race. And so now he's moving from their example to to exhortation, explicit exhortation. He says, listen, it's not just uh, uh, their example that you're to look at and say, wow, isn't that great that they ran the race? No, they're like a cloud of witnesses cheering you on by their example, recorded in sacred scripture, saying now it's your turn to run. You're in the midst of a race as well. The race that is the Christian life. And so you are to run this race with endurance, even as they did. This is why I've shared these examples with you, so that you can trust God's faithfulness and persevere in the race. And again, the analogy that he's picking up, the word picture that he's using, is is an idea that would be well known to his audience. It's this idea of a long-distance race that these ancient peoples would engage in for prizes, for religious purposes. And he's saying, you're engaged in such a race. And it's not, again, a short race. It's not a sprint where you exert a brief, uh, great amount of energy and then you get to rest. No, it's, it's, it's a race in which you are to, for an extended period of time, exert energy and self-discipline and focus And so you need to understand that this isn't something abnormal. All the saints who've gone before you, the people of God, 
Though their races may look different, take different twists and turns, they've all run this race. And now you've been called to run it as well. So endure. Persevere. And yet what I love about this is he doesn't just exhort them or command them to run this race, but you see that there's even an encouragement here, isn't there? Because what does he say? He says, let us lay, I'm sorry, um, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see what he tacks on there? He says, this is a race that's set before us. It's not ultimately a race that, that you volunteered for. It's not a race where you said, oh, coach, I can... I can do it. Put me in. Put me in the... Ultimately, you didn't choose to run. Ultimately, you have been chosen to run. By God's grace, it's your unspeakable privilege to run the Christian race with the people of God before the face of God. And it's meant to be an encouragement because you didn't just volunteer, but also because He is the one who has sovereignly set the course. And so as you look at your life and you go, you maybe compare your Christian life to somebody else's, well, why do I have these weaknesses or these strengths? Why has this been brought into my life? My struggle with singleness or my difficult marriage or my difficult child or this illness that I might have. Why has the Lord brought this into my life and not that person's? What you need to understand is the Lord has sovereignly, lovingly, wisely brought everything into your life. And that is a part of your Christian life. To strengthen you, to challenge you, to conform you more to the image of Christ. And so maybe you're feeling exhausted this morning, wondering why the Lord has set this race before you. Know that He's done so for your good and for His glory. It's not because of your choices. It's not because of your willingness or unwillingness. It's because of His goodness and grace that He's called you to this race that is the Christian life. And because we know that, we can say along with the Apostle Paul, as he says in Philippians 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. In other words, I haven't already crossed the finish line, but... I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, this is the reminder that the only reason that you're engaged in this race in the first place is because of God's grace and mercy. And because we know that, we can run it with endurance. But the, the question naturally follows then, how are we to run this race? How are we to run it? And the first way that we're to run it we see in verse 1 again, by laying aside every weight and sin. So look at verse 1 with me again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, he's picking up this, this language from marathon or long races in the ancient world. And if you know anything about racing today, if you've ever raced on a bike or in the water or ran, you know that one of the utmost concerns 
for those who race is I want as little drag as possible. And so I'm going to pick out the right kind of clothes and I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever it takes so I have as little resistance as I'm trying to race through the air or through the water or whatever. I want as little drag as possible. They had a similar mindset in the ancient world. Now, I'm not saying that this is what we should do today, but in the ancient world, because their clothes were long and cumbersome and flowy, they didn't wear any clothing at all as they ran their races. Again, I'm not saying that's what we should do today, but that is what they did back then. And so the author is, is playing off of this language and saying, you need to ha- have the same mindset. If there are any obstacles that are slowing you down, because you want to run to win the race, win the prize, you should be willing to, to cast off, lay aside anything that might slow you down. And he gives us two categories of things that can slow us down. He's not being redundant here and saying weights are sins and sins are weights. We're definitely going to see that there's a relationship between the two. But he's talking about two different categories. A weight is in one category and sin is in another category. So let's look at each one of these in turn. First of all, when he says that we are to lay aside every weight, he's talking about those things in our lives that are not inherently bad. They're not sinful. They're good in and of themselves, but because of how we twist and pervert them and and put the weight of our souls upon them, we corrupt them and they become heavy for us in our Christian walk. They hinder us from running as freely and as swiftly with the Lord and with his people as we should because our affections have inappropriately rested on them. We're inordinately loving these good gifts that God has given us. But again, we're corrupting them and perverting them through our own misplaced trust and hope in them rather than in God. So you go, okay, well, what's a good example of this? Well, one of the examples that comes up again and again in the New Testament is the example of riches or wealth or an abundance of material possessions. You remember, what does Jesus say? He says in Matthew 19, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Paul tells Timothy, warn those who are rich not to trust in their riches. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now again, the problem is not riches in and of themselves. It's not material possessions. It's that we trust in them. It's when we love them inordinately. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. It can be just about anything. I'm using wealth as a specific example, but it could be your family. It could be your job. It could be your reputation. It could be your health. The list goes on and on. These good gifts to the Lord, we don't hold on to them loosely And say, as Job does, when the Lord takes everything he loves away, what does Job say? He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's to be our attitude. And yet we cling to these things. And when we cling to them, they weigh us down in our race, the race that God has called us to run. Now, here's the question then. Okay, great. I'm to lay aside those weights. How do I do that? So let's start with the easy way that you lay aside those weights. There's some things in your life 
that you just need to completely eradicate and get rid of. So let me give you a couple of examples. Now, you've got to make these calls for yourself, right? They, they, I can't go around and tell everybody, this is the, the weight in your life that you need to get rid of. You need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, show me what is weighing me down in my Christian walk, in my life. Perhaps for you it might be television, entertainment, spending too much time entertaining yourself that takes time away from being with Christ's body, being with your church family, investing yourself in your, your family at home by leading them in family worship. Maybe it's a, a hobby that's taking up too much of your time. Perhaps it's a friendship with an unbeliever where you repeatedly find yourself too weak to resist the temptation to participate in the sins that they're engaging in. And so you finally have to say, I need to cut myself off from that friendship or that association. So that's the easy, the easy part is when, well, it's not easy in one sense, but, but when we completely cut them out of our lives for whatever reason, whatever that weight may be, that's innocent in and of itself, it's a good thing. But you realize it's taking up too much time, it's weighing me down, and so I need to cut that out of my life. Where it gets more difficult is when we've turned into idols things in our lives that we can't just get rid of. Perhaps you're idolizing your spouse. You can't just get rid of them. All right? And maybe you're idolizing your kids, your family in general. You can't just get rid of them. And you shouldn't want to get rid of them. But, you know, it could be your job. And I'm certainly not saying that if you struggle with idolizing wealth, that you should just give it all away, not necessarily. That's between you and the Lord, but you see the point. There are these good things in our lives that we idolize, we put too much weight on them, we trust and hope in them, inordinately love them, and we can't just cut them out of our lives, we've got to keep them around. And so what do we need to do then? We need to, first of all, there are several things we need to do. We need to disentangle our affections from those earthly things. Disentangle the, 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 the way that we inordinately love them. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is you ask the Lord to help you. Lord, help me, empower me, strengthen me. Because only the Holy Spirit can do the true work of mortification in putting to death the ways that we idolize the good things in our lives. So you ask him, Lord, help me, empower me to guard my heart from placing my hope and trust in these earthly good gifts that you've given me, but that I'm twisting and perverting. You ask him to help you to that end and, and to do that heart work that only he can. Second of all, you dive into the Lord's word and you, you feast upon the glorious truths, the glorious doctrines that are there that reveal to us the glories of our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what He's done for us graciously in His Son by saving us. You fill your mind with these eternal things that are so much more weighty and glorious than these earthly transient things. A right view of God puts those things more and more into perspective and in their right place. And then lastly, I think there should be a resolution on our part, a willingness to part with any of those things, should that be required of us by the Lord in order to be faithful to Him and to His gospel. And so I don't do this as often as I should, but 
occasionally I'll, I'll look around at, at my life and the, the things, the good gifts that the Lord has given me, and I do a heart check. <laughs> Am I holding too tight onto these things, Lord? Am I willing to, to let them all go? My wife, who I love, my children, my position at the church, the blessings that the Lord has given me, health, all of these things, and say, Lord, I could lose it all. But if I have you, I have all I need. It's a heart check. But there should be this constant willingness, right? And the Lord tests us. Thankfully, He knows exactly what joys and what sorrows, what gains and what losses to bring into our lives so that we grow. But there should be a willingness on our part to let those weights go and cast them aside if necessary so that we might run the race for Christ more freely. So that's the way we lay aside the weights. Second of all, he says we run this race with endurance by laying aside sin. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now what's he talking about when he says sin here? Is he talking about a particular or specific sin? No, he's not. He's talking about sin generically. He's talking about it the way that Paul does in Romans chapter 7, where there's this principle within our hearts, within our souls, that is still rebelling against the Lord. Now, it doesn't have dominion anymore in our lives. It has been conquered, and yet it's still present, and it's still exerting its force, if you will, and tempting us to rebel against God, to transgress against His law, and to do what is right in our own eyes. That's what he's talking about when he talks about sin, right? This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, um, it's no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. He's not talking about any sin in particular. He's saying the source of all of those particular sins is this principle of the flesh that still dwells within me, that is like a guerrilla warrior that has been conquered, but he's still hanging around, and he's still tempting me to walk in the ways of the flesh, the world, and the devil, rather than the way that the Lord has called me to walk. It's this, this battle that rages between the flesh and the spirit that Paul talks about again in Galatians chapter 5. And I love what uh, Gerhardus Voss has to say about this verse in particular as he's commenting on what the author of the book of Hebrews means by sin. He says, It is for sin an easy thing to approach us. Why? Because we always carry it with us. It runs as it were. Remember, think, think of the analogy. We're running a long-distance race. It runs as it were the race with us. You can never outrun your sin as much as you may wish to. Why? Because you carry it with you in your bosom. It is at the same time the most dangerous and the most ubiquitous of our spiritual foes. We know that, don't we? We know it. Now, here's the thing. It'd be a whole lot easier if it was one particular specific sin that he's saying to lay aside here, wouldn't it? From one standpoint, it'd be like, all right, so he's telling me to lay aside gossip. So I'm going to memorize some verses about gossip. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be slow to speak and quick to listen. I'm going to try to avoid associations where people tempt me to gossip. 
And I'm going to shut it down if they do try to include me, and that's really going to be my focus. That seems a bit more attainable than lay aside sin. Lay aside that, well, it's always going to be there with me, so how do I lay it aside? Well, from one standpoint, it's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible for us to do by our own strength. It's impossible for us to do in the flesh. It's impossible to do by our own willpower, white-knuckling it through. And so how do we do it then? Well, we've just been walking through Hebrews chapter 11, so I hope you know what your response should be. By faith. By faith we lay aside sin. And so what does that look like? We don't have nearly as much time as I'd like to spend on this, but Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. You remember he's sharing the gospel with the Romans and he's anticipating them saying, well, then why don't we sin it up so that grace may abound? And do you remember what Paul says? He says, don't you get it? You've died with Christ. When he died on the cross, you died with him to the flesh and the world and the devil. And when he was resurrected from the dead, you rose to newness of life with him. Don't you understand who you now are in Christ? You can't just walk in the ways of the flesh because you are dead to the ways of the world and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so we receive that reality that's true about us by faith and we take that as our identity. And so when you're tempted... To walk in the ways of this world, you say, no, I'm dead to that and alive to God through Christ. I'm going to put that off and I'm going to put this on instead. Put off the ways of the flesh. I'm dead to the old man and I'm going to walk in accord with God's law because that, that brings him glory and honor. It pleases him. And I want to please my father. So how do, we, how do we start by laying aside sin? By understanding we're dead to it. Receiving that by faith. And then you see the fruit of that faith, Paul goes on to say, is you then don't present your members to sin as slaves of unrighteousness. No, instead you present your members as slaves to God for His glory, for the sake of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit flows forth from this this faith and receiving the reality that we're dead to sin in Jesus and alive to God. And so this is how we lay aside sin. It's a constant thing that we're to be doing day in and day out. And so I love that he doesn't just tell them, hey, you're supposed to run the race. No, he tells them, this is how you're to run the race. Cast off those things that weigh you down. Cast off sin. Make no provision for the flesh. But brothers and sisters, here's the thing. There's no way we're going to do that unless we also understand the way that we run the race with endurance is by looking to Jesus. That's the third point that he brings up in verse 2. You are to look to Jesus. So let's look at verse 2 then. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, one of the the big downsides to the fact that we read a translation of the Scriptures is we miss such important little subtle nuances in the original language. And I'm thankful for the Greek scholars that study this stuff and bring it to our attention. Uh, John Owen uh, pointed out the fact that this Greek word here for looking 
is actually in the present tense. And so what that means then, and this is what John Owen says, he says what's intended is a continued act. In other words, it's not at the beginning of the race that you just look at Jesus and go, all right, he's done all this for my salvation. Now let's get to running. And I got to do it in, in the flesh. I got to do it by my own strength. I got to focus on myself and my surroundings. And, you know, maybe if I have a really bad spill, then I look to Jesus again. And he forgives me, and now I'm back in the race, doing it in my own strength. And then, you know, death is scary, so at the end of the race, I look to Jesus again. And then I finish the race. No! What this word here, looking, is telling us is, this is to be our constant activity. We don't just do it at the beginning, we don't just do it at the end, we don't just do it occasionally here or there. We are to be constantly, continually gazing at Christ. And His glory, looking to Him, not our circumstances, not ourselves, not even the strength or the weakness of our faith, but the object of our faith, the Son of God who saved us. We look to Him day in and day out all the time. So here's the question that you're probably asking, and it's a good question. All right, so what does it look like to look to Jesus? How do I do that? Again, we could spend a lot of time talking about what that looks like. But I want to highlight the two ways that the author here is encouraging us to look to Jesus. Two ways. First of all, he's encouraging us to look to Jesus as our example to imitate. Right? Isn't that the whole point here? It's a crescendo of everything that came before in Hebrews 11. We're given example after example of these these servants of God who because of his faithfulness faithfully lived their lives and finished the race. And yet the greatest example isn't found in Hebrews 11, is it? The example of faith for us to imitate par excellence is here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is our supreme example. He is the only human. Oh yes, He was more than just human. But He was the only human to run His race by faith perfectly. And we're to follow Him. Follow His example. So what, what example has He left us? What example are we to imitate here? Well, verse 2 tells us. Look at verse 2 with me again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now here's the part that, of verse 2 that I want to focus on. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So let's, let's, let's pick this apart a little bit. Who for the joy that was set before him? What was the joy that was set before Jesus? Right? By the way, notice the similarity. Your race is set before you. This race was set before Jesus. What is the joy that he's running for? The joy that he's running for is, brothers and sisters, our salvation, our reconciliation to God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the glory of God. He saves us to the glory of God. That's his joy. That's why he comes to do the Father's will, to save the elect whom the Father has given him, to save them to the uttermost, to the glory of God. That's the joy that's set before Jesus. Now, what do we mean by before him? What's the the joy that was set before him? 
Well, first of all, it's according to the eternal decree of God. According to the covenant of redemption that the Father and the Son entered into. Son, you are going to go, I willingly go, and take on flesh and accomplish everything necessary for the elect, the beloved whom you've given me, Father. And also it's set before him in the fact that there's so many prophecies and types and shadows in the Old uh, Testament telling us about the Messiah who was to come, and Jesus fulfills all of those. And so for the joy that's set before him, what does he do? He endures the cross. Jesus' whole life was an arduous race, a taxing race in which he exerted strength continually to run it. But the, the crescendo, the climax, is when he's on the cross. And why is he on the cross? He's paying the penalty for your sin and for my sin. He's paying the penalty that we could not repay to the Father. That's why He came. And He endures it. He runs that race by faith. He endures it for us. And He despises its shame, right? That's what the text says. He he doesn't love the shame. He's not excited about the shame, right? What does He say to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh, Father, if this cup could pass... If there's some other way, I would take it. But he knows there's not. So he takes that cup, as shameful as it is, and drinks it to the dregs, likely naked on a cross, laying down his life willingly, enduring that shame. And because he endured, because he persevered to the end, what was his reward? Look at the end of verse 2. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Father is pleased with the Son's work. He accepts it on our behalf. And He sits down at the Father's right hand. My work is done, and I continue to intercede for them, Father. Do you see the example of Jesus? He ran it perfectly. And He can sympathize with us. He's he's not asking us to run a race that He Himself hasn't run. And He ran it perfectly. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We need much more than just an example, don't we? Because if all we're given in Jesus is an example to follow, we're given nothing but condemnation. Right? Because we all know this morning that none of us have run the race perfectly as Jesus did. We have failed in many ways, and we will fail in many ways in the future. We're not excited about that, but it's reality. And so we need to look to Jesus, not just as our example to imitate, but brothers and sisters, we need to look to him, secondly, the author says, as the founder and perfecter of our faith. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, this this faith that you have, where do you think that came from? It's not your faith properly spoken of. You didn't create faith in yourself. No, quite the opposite. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? This faith is a gift of God, not of works. Why? So that no one can boast. The Father's given it to you as a gift so that He gets the glory. So who's the, the author, the founder, the originator, the beginner of our faith? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who has given it to us just as He gave it to the saints of old. Why should that encourage us? Because 
we're not just told that, that he's the originator or the beginner or the gifter, the author of our faith. He's also the perfecter or the finisher. So he doesn't just say, hey, here's this faith. It's a gift. You better keep it. Take good care of it. Watch after it because you might lose it. Well, we do have to nurture it and care for it. But the greatest joy that we have and the greatest assurance that we have is, I've given you this faith. I'm the one who began it. And I am the one as you run who will perfect you and keep it. You understand a time is coming when we will be perfected. At the end of the race, when we close our eyes in death, or when Jesus comes back, that's what we're running towards. And so we're not to look to ourselves. We're not to look at our circumstances and say, man, I don't know how I'm going to be able to endure and persevere into the end. No, we're to look to Jesus and understand He's not just my example to follow. Even more importantly, He is the originator of my faith. He's the perfecter of my faith, and he will carry me all the way to the end of the race. He will sustain me. So brothers and sisters, don't don't look at your circumstances and say, my, what formidable enemies the flesh, the world, and the devil are. And don't look at at yourself and say, I'm so weak. How am I going to endure and run this race? And my faith is equally weak. Instead, what are we to do? We're to look to Jesus. He says, I've already run the race. I ran it in your place perfectly. And I hold you in the palm of my hand. And no one, no one, no one will take you out of it. You will run the race with endurance to the end. And do you see what this does, brothers and sisters? This doesn't create in us some lackadaisical attitude. Doesn't doesn't make me go, man, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and probably going to finish the race anyway. Just do bumble through life. No. This motivates me to want to run more swiftly, more diligently, more fervently, laying aside every weight and sin. But you will not be able to endure or cast aside the weights and the sins unless we're looking Jesus. So look to Him and run and know that He is pleased and He will keep you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're humbled by the privilege of running the race that You've set before us. We know it's not because of anything good in us. It's purely an act of Your grace. And we pray that you would grant to us endurance, that you would grant to us a zeal for laying off the weights that slow us down, the things in life that are unnecessary, the obstacles. May we cut ourselves free from them and detach our hearts from them in inordinate ways. May we cast off our sin and may we look to you. May we look to you all our days rejoicing In you, Lord Christ, understanding that this world has nothing to offer that is greater than you. So may we run, understanding we're running to your open arms as those who've gone before us cheer us on until that great day when the race is done. Keep us, we pray, until that great day. And may you do it all to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Amen.